Let's go to the Lord more time in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to create life in our hearts, cause us to see the glory, honor, beauty of Christ. He would be precious to us. We may treasure him, follow him, obey him, trust him. Lord, as was prayed earlier, we, we ask again, illuminate parts in our lives that need the light of your word to shine in. But we know that we are not perfect. We know that even in your grace, uh, in our state of grace in Christ, there are still areas in our lives that are not pleasing to you. We pray, shine the light of your word on us, that we would see how we can repent and believe even more. We pray this in the name of Christ. The question uh, we're going to ask this morning, two questions really, is what is God doing in the world? And how do we participate in that work? How do we have the, the, the honor and privilege of partnering with him? I want to suggest that we, we really can't function effectively as a church unless we're able to give answers to those questions. I mean, there are many different things in this world that we could give ourselves as, to, as a church, uh, doing good deeds. We could be a social club. Uh, we could be a place that people come and just learn to fill our heads even bigger. There's no shortage of things that we could give ourselves to as a church. Uh, but we need to ask the question first, not just what we want to do, but what is God doing? What is his purpose that he has us here for? What is his goal? And then how do we participate with him? How do we join him? I think it, it changes our perspective if we recognize first that it is God's work that we are called to be part of. Suddenly we realize we can't just make it up as we go along. The church isn't here simply by our own desire. Hey, let's have a group of people who come together and do things. No, the church is God's work. It is something he is doing because he has a purpose that he is enacting in the world, and he calls us in his mercy and love to be part of it. And we need to recognize first that it is his work. Imagine an artist you greatly admire, a living artist you greatly admire, and imagine that artist calls you up and says, I want you to be part of this, this great work of art that I am constructing. Privilege, right? But he don't just give you, you know, the shadows, the dark background. They give you the main focus, you know, the person's face. They say, I want you to be part of this work, and I want to help you to help me in this very critical area. Well, that would be great, a great privilege and honor, wouldn't it? And if you were to ask to do that, you would, you would want to know first, okay, what is the artist's goal? What is the artist doing? Because you're not there to just sort of doodle however you want. You're there to help the artist. And you'd want to know, what is, what is it exactly that they're doing, and how do you become a part of it? That's what we need to think of as a church. The church is something that God is doing. It is his mission. And we, in his mercy and honor, and mercy and grace, are allowed to be part of that great work. It's helpful to remember that God is doing many things in the world that we actually don't join him in at all. The Bible says that God is upholding the world by the word of his power. He's holding every single molecule and atom and cell in the world together by the word of his power. 
we don't help them in that. We're not like, hold it down. Got to keep everything in. No, God's got that taken care of. We don't help. We don't participate. We don't have really a role in that at all. But there is a work. God's favorite work. The, The work of bringing salvation to all people. God has said, I want you to be part of that. We need to know what God is doing, and we need to know how he invites us to be part of it. And the the passage for this morning offers us a unique insight into God's plan and how we're part of it. I'm not sure there's any other passage in the New Testament that quite as clearly and succinctly summarizes what God is doing and then clearly connects what our part is. And my prayer is that as we look at this passage, our excitement for God's plan, for God's work would grow. And first, we would realize how much we directly benefit from what he does. God is saving people. We need to rest in that salvation. We need to uh, appreciate that salvation for ourselves. And then we need to see how we are part of what God is doing to take the gospel into the world. So we're looking through the book of 1 Timothy. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Uh, If you haven't been with us, let me just uh, fill you in on what's going on. Paul is writing this book to a young pastor named Timothy in the church of Ephesus. There were many false teachers in that church who were trying to undermine the gospel. Uh, They were teaching something that was wrong. And and as you read the letter, it seems as if these false teachers were at the same time trying to both undermine Paul, I mean, undermine Timothy, and undermine the gospel. Seems to suggest that Timothy's ministry, Timothy's life even, was so identified with the gospel that to oppose the gospel was to oppose him. To oppose him was to oppose the gospel. They were identified in a way. If you're here this morning as a a man aspiring to be an elder in the church, well, that's exactly what you want your ministry to be. You want to be so identified with the gospel that if somebody opposes the gospel, they oppose you. They oppose you, they oppose the gospel. As Christians, all Christians, that's what we want our life to be about, that our lives are so identified with the gospel. But anyway, these false teachers had really no intention of joining God in his mission. They wanted to go off and start their own mission. We saw two weeks ago how Paul instructed Timothy to silence these people. Don't let them teach. We saw that this was the most loving thing he could do because they were a pack of wolves that would um, destroy the flock. It was loving to stop the wolves from hurting the sheep. This week, we're going to see Paul's more positive instruction to Timothy where he tells Timothy what they ought to be about in their worship services. This is what they ought to do as he connects what they ought to do with God, what God is doing. So I'm going to read the passage, uh, Second Timothy, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And as I read it, I'm going to emphasize a certain word. I think the Greek text actually emphasizes this word, so it's really just bringing apart the original emphasis. So I read it, see what word you think it is that... Uh, we're emphasizing here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator, the man, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What word there did I draw special attention to? All, yes. That word all is the thread that weaves through this entire passage. And it holds it all together. Prayers ought to be made for all people. And he means all sorts of people, specifically mentioning kings and those in authority. The people whose Timothy's congregation would probably be least likely to pray for. All people, including these guys. Why do we pray for them? Because God wants all people to be saved and know Christ. Why does God want everybody to know Christ? Because Christ died for all. His death is sufficient for every person who's ever trusted in him. What does Paul do because Christ died for all? Well, Paul says that he's a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word Gentiles means everybody who's not Jewish, which is another way of saying all. So basically, pray for all. Because God wants all to be saved. Christ died for all. So Paul brings the gospel to all. See how that that word all is the thread that weaves this whole passage together? And as it weaves this whole passage together, it connects what God does and what God wants and what we're supposed to do. we'll, We'll see that. Let me just give you an initial observation from this passage. The fact that all is the word that ties it together tells us that God's plan is is a really big one, right? It's not limited. It's for all. He desires to save all. And that tells us right there that if we're going to participate in God's plan, it's going to be a very big job as well. Let's not limit our participation by our own comfort. I don't like those sorts of people. It doesn't include them or... Or let's not limit our participation and limit God's plan by our unbelief. Those kinds of people could never change. No. And as we look at this passage, let's be prepared to be stretched. Let's be prepared to be challenged in our view of what God is doing and how we are, are participating. Now, there are four key uses of all that I just laid out there. The middle two are about what God does. God desires all to be saved. Christ dies for all. The ones on the end, the first and the last, are about what humans do. Pray for all. Share the gospel with all. So the way I want to go through this passage is to begin at the center, begin with what God does, and then work up, and then go back to the center, and then work down. That way we start with what God does, and then make application to what we ought to do. So the outline is, God's care and our prayer, verses 1 through 4, and then Christ's gift and our mission, verses 5 through 7. Begin with verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's meditate on that idea of God desiring all people to be saved. God desires it. Quick note about God's desires. God has desires, clearly in this passage, but we can't think, oh, I know what that means, because I have desires, so therefore God must have desires in the exact same way I have desires. No, we can't do that. They're God's desires. 
there's a big difference between his desires and our desires. God's desires do not change. How often do our desires change, right? God's desires are in every way consistent with his character. We desire things quite inconsistent with our own character, right? God's desires are altogether good, and yet sometimes our desires are not good. We desire what is evil. God's desires are never ultimately frustrated. Our desires are frustrated all the time. God never desires something out of a sense of need because he's already complete within the Trinity. Our desires arise out of a sense of need all the time. We, we want food because without it we die. But God, his desires are always born out of his free choice. So, so there's a difference between God's desires and our desires, but God has desires. It's not just an abstract idea, being in general. No, God wants things. Listen to a couple of things that God says he, he clearly desires in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is stirred within me. All my compassion is aroused. God here is likened to a father grieving over his wayward children. He wants them to come back so much. Or consider Jesus' statement, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed, longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus longs for his people. Friends, it's really important to know that we relate to God as a God who has desires so we can know how we relate to him personally. Know, Christian, that God desires you. Know yourself as one who is desired by God. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, right? It's a hard day for some people because you want someone to desire you. Perhaps you're not married, you're single, or perhaps... You're married and your spouse doesn't have any affection for you. And you have that deep sense of being alone. You need to know that God desires you. God desires the very best thing for you. He desires your salvation. Maybe you're wondering, how do I know that I'm really included? All people, it says. All who call on him won't be disappointed. When it says that God desires all to be saved, it means that no one who looks to him will ever be turned away. God isn't just desiring people who are better than others. He isn't desiring the rich or the smart or those who look outwardly religious. He isn't desiring those who the world would consider to be ideal participants in his plan. He's desiring all people. My my non-Christian friends here, please hear this. You have no biblical reason in the world to think that God doesn't desire you to be saved. You think, well, it couldn't be me because of all the things I've done wrong. Well, no. All people here. Unless your version of the Bible, you found a Greek manuscript that has your name there as an exception clause. It's for all. He wants all to be saved. So rest in him. Come to him for your salvation. Trust in him. And then, my Christian friends, if you know that God desires all to be saved, do you pray for all? Look back at verse 1. That's the clear connection he makes in this passage. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. See the clear connection? When Paul says there, this is good, the this there is the prayer. So it's good and pleasing in God's sight for prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving to be made for all people because God desires all people to be saved. In other words, what he's saying here is, is Christians, you need to pray for the thing that God desires. Your desires need to be for God's desires. Prayer is you know, us telling God our desires, right? Your desires need to be the same as God's desires. God desires it all to be saved. So you should pray for that. And just as there are no limits on the kind of people who God desires to be saved, so there should be no limits on the kind of people you pray for. So, you who are American citizens here, and you're you're Republican, do you pray for your Democratic president? Or if you're Democrats, do you pray for your Republican governor? Do you pray only for the people who you would like to be saved because there would be some benefit for you? I find myself doing that. Oh, I'd really like to be in fellowship with that person, so I'll pray for them extra much. Or do you pray for all people? Because God wants all to be saved. We look and see, oh, that person would be particularly useful to the kingdom, so I'll pray for that person. God doesn't look with those eyes. He prays for all. A major application for this is in our worship services. I think that's the intended um, area of application that God is giving for Timothy, Paul is giving for Timothy. Uh, And you'll notice that we tried to do that in our service this morning. Steve prayed for all people. He prayed for another church very deliberately. He prayed for a missionary that the gospel would go to all people in, in that person's area. We want to be intentional about our prayers because we think that that is a very important part of what we do as a church. And the fact that the the primary exhortation in this passage is to pray tells us that our prayers are so important. I'll hear some people say things sometime like, you know what, I really can't do anything, so I'll pray. As if prayer is what you do when you can't do anything else at all. No, prayer does something. In some ways, it is the main thing. God desires all to be saved, so he tells us to pray for all. That's what we ought to do. And that is, in and of itself, being part of the plan. You're not sidelined at that point, praying for the main thing going on. No, the prayer is the main thing going on. That's how God wants you to be part of his plan. He wants you to pray. So let's, Greenbelt Baptist Church, be a church of prayer. A church that is is publicly and personally dedicated to prayer. A main way to pray, to care for members in the congregation, is to pick up the church directory and just pray through the membership regularly. Pray for the people. Pray for your non-Christian friends. Pray for your non-Christian enemies. Pray for people. So we followed that thread of all, and we've seen that we pray for all because God wants all to be saved. Now, if we follow that golden thread one step further, we see it appears in verse 6. So look down at verse 6. Paul says, who, this is talking about Christ, gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice that. So what we have here, 
We pray for all. God desires all to be saved. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, we're not the only one who are joining the Father's plan. Christ is joining the Father's plan. Jesus dies for the same group of people that the Father desires to be saved. We see the the Trinity working together here. I've heard people teach the idea that, or, or imply the idea, that God is this stern, angry deity, and the Son comes along, and the son says, oh, oh, don't, don't put your wrath on those people. I will go and die for them. And the father says, okay, if you insist, but I would have enjoyed smoking them. That's kind of the impression people give at times. But, but that's not the picture the scripture gives. Because the picture the scripture gives is of a God, a loving father who wants them to be saved. And then Jesus goes to the cross to save those people who the father wants to be saved. The cross, you have to understand, doesn't make God loving. The cross satisfies God's justice so he can love without contradiction of himself. That's what the cross does. The cross arises out of God's desire for all to be saved. Let's meditate a little bit on that idea of God, of Christ giving himself. Christ gave himself. The Father desires Christ gave. That's the core reason why Jesus came to the earth, to give himself. Jesus didn't come primarily to teach or heal. He certainly didn't come to seek glory for himself. He came to give. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, sorry, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For this one purpose, Jesus came into the world to give his life for his people. In the book of John, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was not coerced to give himself. He was not tricked or manipulated. He simply did it because because he wanted to. He willingly gave. Through Isaiah, we learn that Jesus speaks, My back I gave to those who strike. My cheeks I gave to those who pull out the beard. Jesus gave himself to death. He gave himself to the Roman soldiers who whipped him until he was a bloody mess. He gave himself to be stripped and publicly mocked. He gave his hands to be nailed through. He gave himself to be suspended on a cross. He gave himself for our sakes. As I was meditating on this, I appreciated greatly the generosity of Christ. He would give himself for that reason. Well, friends, let's pray for one another that we also appreciate the generosity of Christ in this regard. But in order to realize what it means that he gave himself, an important question is just how does the cross of Christ benefit us? It sounds very moving to talk about Jesus giving himself over in these ways, but if we don't understand how that actually benefits us, what it actually does, then it loses its value. Let me try to illustrate this. Suppose you are with some friends around a bonfire, and one of your good friends says, I want you to know how much I love you, man, and he jumps in the fire. You probably wouldn't think of your friend as loving. You probably think of your friend as crazy and a little bit unloving because... 
you're somehow responsible for his death, cruel death. But consider this. Imagine you're captured by ISIS, and you know a horrible death awaits you unless the ransom price is paid. But what ISIS has demanded is not $200 million. What they want is for your best friend to come over and die in your place. And then your best friend, in a great act of love, comes and dies in your place. Well, now, if your friend is burnt for you, all of a sudden you see that as extremely loving, right? Because it actually accomplishes something. It actually gives something for you. Friends, that's how the Bible talks about the death of Christ. Look at verse 6 there. He gave himself, what? As a ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment for the release of something. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, but, but I'm not captured by ISIS. I don't, why do I need a ransom paid on my behalf? Well, the Bible tells us that we actually are in bondage. God is holy, righteous, and just. He's perfect in every way. The Bible talks about God as being pure, light, and a blazing fire. God made us for himself. As creatures made for God, we must honor him. We must keep the standard that he has given us. We must be like him. But we haven't. We've rather done what we want rather than what God wants. We've not honored him as our God. And therefore, we are under God's just judgment. We must understand that because God is holy and just, he must judge sin. For, not, for God not to judge sin is for God not to be God. His holiness is at stake. His whole character is at stake. Therefore, when sinners come before the judgment of God, they receive what the Bible calls a penalty, a curse, a just judgment. But Jesus, in his great act of love, received that punishment in our place. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that is written in the book of the law. And then it says, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ ransoms his people from the curse of sin, and he pays the price by becoming that curse. He takes the penalty that they deserve. Christ's death is our redemption, our ransom. He satisfies the demands of justice in our place so that we can be free. And not only are we ransomed, redeemed from the bondage of sin, we're redeemed and ransomed to God. We are bought with a price. We are purchased by him. We are his people, those who've trusted in Christ. So friends, this is what it means that when Christ gave himself for you, He gave himself to die, a death that the Bible says is in your place, freeing you from the penalty and the punishment of sin, that you may know God, experience life and joy and freedom. Now, another question we have to ask to understand him giving himself is what made Christ's giving of himself work? Can anybody with a great amount of love in their hearts die on the cross for all humanity, that all humanity will be saved? Did did God work out this same deal with multiple people that they can all take the curse upon themselves? No. There's something unique about Christ, and this passage explains it. Look back at verse 5. There's a special status that Christ has that qualifies him to be our ransom. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
What's a mediator? A mediator is someone who reconciles two parties. If you're maybe your business partner and you have a business partner, you can't get along and there's a problem, so what do you do? You find a mediator, someone who could maybe bring you together. Almost all religions in the world have the idea of a mediator. Religions have holy people, priests, men or women, who have some special ability to relate to God. That's in all religions. Why is that? I think it's because we know instinctively that God is holy. We know that not anybody can just march into his his presence any old way they feel like it. We need a mediator. Everybody knows that. The Bible, too, speaks of mediators. Adam was a kind of mediator between God and creation. Adam ruled over creation in God's place. He named the animals. Abraham was a mediator. He related to God concerning cities of his day. Moses is one of the clearest examples of a mediator in the Old Testament. He stands before God when the people have sinned. But none of these mediators can do what ultimately needs to happen, to really bring God and man together. But enter Jesus. Jesus is God who takes on human nature. Without ceasing to be God in any way, he He takes on true humanity. So he is God and man at the same time. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Paul's understanding already that Jesus is God. That's clear from what he said. He's called the Lord. He's associated with with God the Father in a unique way. Paul understands Jesus is God in, in 1 Timothy up to this point. And then he says he's also man. He's God and man at the same time. So get this. Jesus doesn't just stand between the two parties, God and man. Jesus is those two parties, God and man. The central religious question is how can humans have a relationship with God? That's the central question for all of us. If you can answer that question, you're okay. If you can't answer that question, then you'll be lacking the most important thing. And the answer to the question, how can humans have a relationship with God, is Jesus Christ. The answer isn't an idea, a teaching, a way of life. The answer is a person. Jesus Christ himself is the answer to the question because of who he is. He is God and he is man. And therefore, he is how we can have a relationship with God. Because he is God and man, his death can intercede for us in a unique way. The one who gave himself for us in human form, he is in human form, So he can take the curse that we humans deserve. He's also God. And that means that his death is of infinite value. That's why he can satisfy the penalty for all. Time and time again, Christians have made the argument that Christ's death is of infinite value, worth to cover the sins of the whole world because of the infinite one who wrought it. Because of the infinite one who died. Because of Christ's person, being who he is, God and man, his death on the cross satisfies the punishment worth uh, sufficient enough for the sins of the whole world. This is what Peter is getting at when he says that we are redeemed, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood. Is there any blood more precious than that which is God and man at the same time? And notice how in this passage, that leads us to the exclusivity of Christ. There is how many mediators? One mediator between God and man. No one else is who Jesus is, 
and no one else did what Jesus did. There's only one. If there were multiple redeemers, the logic here is that because there is only one, it is sufficient for all. I know this is controversial in our times, isn't it? The exclusivity of Christ. You're talking to somebody, maybe at the college campus or in your workplace. They think it might be kind of cool if you have a relationship with Jesus until they realize that you think that he's the only way, that it's Jesus or nothing, that there's no other option. All of a sudden, that, that seems offensive to others. It's, it sounds unloving. It sounds unloving, though, first because the world has a wrong understanding of love. They think love equals unconditional approval, which it does not. But also, the exclusivity of Christ sounds as if we're barring people from entering. Oh, we believe in Christ alone, so we want to keep out everybody else. But that's not what we mean at all. By saying we believe in Christ alone, we're saying everybody can come through Christ. And think about it. If there were multiple saviors, then you'd have different saviors for different people. Christ would be the savior for some. But because Christ is the only savior, he is the savior for all. We shouldn't despair because Christ is the only way we can come to God. We should be encouraged because in Christ is everything we need in order to come to God. The way to be inclusive for all is to be exclusive of Christ. Again, I know it's hard to swallow in our culture today, but consider what happens if we give up this idea of Christ alone. First, we give up our salvation. Because the Bible plainly states that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So to give up the exclusivity of Christ would be to give up the possibility of salvation. But there's something else that might not be quite as obvious. So we also give up the unity of the church. Listen to what Paul tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4. He tells them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, that's a good word for our culture today. That would resonate with people. Yes, unity is a good thing. We want to be united, and we want to be united across all sorts of spectrums, too. And then Paul gives the rationale for this unity. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one gospel and one body of Christ. Therefore, it is for all people. That's his logic. If there were multiple ways to be saved, then we wouldn't have to all gather together as one church. We could find our own view of salvation that fits with our own personal tastes. We wouldn't have to love people who are different than we are. We could be part of a religion that was tailor-made for our own personality type. It wouldn't be a contradiction if Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America. Because naturally, people would seek a salvation to suit their own interests, backgrounds, and personality. But Jesus, there's only one Savior, and that means he's the Savior for all. And that means we have no choice but to be united together as one body in Christ. The book of Revelation uh, speaks, the, the redeemed creation speaks to Christ, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, 
And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. There is one Savior who ransomed people from every tribe and nation. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me plead with you to trust in this Christ. The infinite value of Christ's death means it is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. You have no reason in the world to think that his death isn't for you. You can trust in him. The way we experience this salvation is by believing in him. Trust in him. He died on the cross for all those who would believe in him. And my Christian friends, we'll, we'll close in a second, but do you understand the urgency then to take the gospel to all people? And right after Paul talks about how Christ died for all, he then says he's an apostle, preacher, and teacher of the Gentiles, which is another way of saying all. We pray for all because God wants all to be saved. Christ died for all, so the gospel must go to all. Friends, what are you doing to bring the gospel to all people? How are you engaging your coworkers, your family, and your friends, the people on your sports teams, or your children's sports teams? the people in your neighborhood. A key word that I think we need to, to understand here is that we need to be intentional. We could easily go off in two, two wrong ways. We could load ourselves with guilt because, oh, there's somebody in our court down the road that I haven't actually talked to the gospel, talked about with the gospel, and we could load ourselves with guilt because we see more we could do. Or we could go the other way and, and think, well, I've, I did one thing, and therefore that's enough. I think the key word there is we just need to be intentional. We need to, to understand it's a priority. We need to pray for the people. So often in praying for others, that's how we get a heart to share the gospel with them. And that opens up doors of opportunity. Pray for all. Invite them to church. Bring the gospel to them. Do you see that this, the, the thread of all links this whole passage together? God wants the people to be saved. If we meditate on God's desire for the people to be saved, that will lead us to sharing the gospel with them. Meditate on the sufficiency of Christ's death, it will lead us to sharing the gospel with them. And if we pray for them, it will lead us to share the gospel with them as well. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bring the gospel to all people. We pray that you would be drawing people to yourself, that they may know you and your son who you have sent, and that is eternal life. Give us a burden for others. We may take your gospel to others, that they may know how they can be saved and trust in you. Lord, if there are those here this morning who don't understand how Christ's death applies to them personally, we pray that you would work in their hearts, they would see Christ as beautiful and trust deeply in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.